Hi, y'all. This is Heather. And I'm Lena. And this is Cocktails and Killers. Woo woo! <laughs> going to be discussing is serial killer Dorothea Puente. Dorothea. That's like that little sweet old neighbor like down the road that like makes Christmas candy for everybody. Yeah. Dorothea. Yeah. She, everybody thought she was a sweet little old lady who Till she slips house. arsenic in your freaking fudge. <laughs> <laughs> Damn Dorothea. On November 11th, 1988. Uh, detectives swarmed this home on F Street in Sacramento, California. So 1988, I would have been about five. I you would have been about 30. No. <laughs> Just I joking. <was> six. <laughs> um, a lot of guests would check into the boarding house, mm -hmm. but they would never check out. They Ooh. disappeared. Is this like the Hotel Cortez? Oh, kind of. Yeah. Okay. I'm ready to hear more. <laughs> the investigators were there searching for a man by the name of Alberto Montoya. He was developmentally disabled okay. and a schizophrenic. And his social worker had reported him missing. Mm. When the cops got there, they noticed some disturbed soil on the lot. Uh -oh. And they uncovered instead... A body of another person, 78-year-old Leona Carpenter, who was what? another tenant of the house. Oh. So Even, what, she just has this house and she just brings in all these wayward people to live mm -hmm. with her? Yeah. Yeah. So she seems like a really sweet person, but she had ulterior motives, obviously. Oh, oh yeah. She was a criminal pretty much from childhood really yeah hmm. she um they actually nicknamed her the death house landlady <laughs> death house landlady note to self yeah never live in a house with other people <laughs> oh yeah she murdered elderly and mentally disabled boarders and by poisoning them and then she buried the remains in her yard and continued to cash their social security checks she's the lowest of the low oh yeah so, what happened when they found this body? Well, we'll get to that. Oh, no. Nah. So, let's start from the beginning. She was born in 1929 in Redlands, California. Okay. She was born to two alcoholics. Mm. And her, fa her father was a cotton picker. Um, both of her parents abused her. And often, she had to scavenge for food just mm. to eat. She was the sixth of seven children. Wow. And she grew up poor and deprived of material comforts and parental nurturing because, of course, they were both alcoholics. Right, right. Um, this is where that 
nature versus nurture comes in, right? Yeah. A lot of people talk about with serial killers, and I still haven't made up my mind about it yet. So yeah, I'm interested you know, to hear a more. A lot of these serial killers always seem to have these horrible upbringings. And mm-hmm. I mean, now you will have a few that had a wonderful childhood. Yeah. And still turned out. I feel like that's the minority. Mm-hmm. Don't you? I do. Yeah. I feel like a lot of other podcasts I've listened to have talked about, you know, a lot of these serial killers in their childhoods were mm-hmm. just horrible. horrible. Yep. I agree with that. Yeah. So when she was eight years old, her father died of tuberculosis. Mm. And her... Shout out to the vaccines. (laughs) (laughs) Pro-vaxxer right here. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Dorothea. (laughs) So her mother alternated in between abusing the children and deserting them and ended up Mm. losing custody in 1938. That same year, she actually died in a motorcycle wreck, which made Dorothea an orphan before she even turned 10. Wow. So, after both of the parents died, um, her and the siblings uh, were split up, and they were sent to live in different locations. Mm, I think that's a big thing, too. Yeah. Splitting them up, you know. They need some sort of normality, stability, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And at the age of 16, uh, Dorothea made her way to Washington State and was working as a hooker and also in an ice cream parlor. Well, okay then. <laughs> I'll give you some ice cream and a blowjob. <laughs> Hello, 16. Okay then. That's crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so she she ended up in Olympia, Washington. And worked as a prostitute to earn money. Mm. And ended up catching the attention of a man named Fred McFall who was a 22-year-old soldier that had just returned to the U.S. from the Pacific after World War II. Mm. And he and Dorothea actually ended up getting married in 1945 and then moved to Gardnerville, Nevada to start a family. They married in Reno, and she apparently claimed to be 30 years old. And she was like 16, 17? Yeah. Hmm. She claimed to be 30 and signed the marriage certificate as Sherry L. A. I want to try to pronounce the last name. It's Riscal, R I S. I'm just going to say whatever skincare she was using to pretend to be 35. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know about your sister. I feel like I read somewhere that a lot of time that she looked older than she was just because she had led such a hard life. I could see that. I see that. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. Together, they ended up having two kids. She gave birth to a daughter in 1946, followed by a second one less than a year later. Mm. Keeping it close together. One girl ended up placed in the care of relatives, and the other was actually put up for adoption. Really? Do we know why? No. uh, Someone had just said, you know, she... Most likely inherited her mother's aversion Mm -hmm. to child rearing. I'm sure back then it wasn't like it is now. It's just like, oh, you suck as a mom. I'm taking your kid. You know, like, there you go. Sorry. Sorry about your luck. (laughs) At this time, Fred uh, ended up sick of it. He wanted out of the marriage. He um, 
discovered that Dorothea was, of course, a compulsive liar. Hmm. Um, she spun tales of how she survived the Bataan Death March, how she was related to the ambassador of Sweden. She told people that she was a close friend of film star Rita Hayworth. Wow. So he finally left her uh, in 1948. And later that year, Dorothea moved to San Bernardino. Now, did they get divorced or did he just like up and move? They divorced. Okay, they officially divorced. Okay, yeah, so she's he, single, on the prowl, ready to mingle, mm-hmm, give move. somebody some more ice cream and head <laughs> to draw them in. Okay, I feel you, Dorothea. I feel yeah. you. So she moved to San Bernardino. Okay. And she actually picked up her first criminal conviction mm. because she tried to float a check under a false name. That's how it always starts. Bad yeah. checks. Yep. Bad checks and prostitution. Yes. <laughs> She ended up serving four months in jail, and Dang, shortly can you, four months for writing a bad check. Yeah. Now you just like get your name up on the wall with your bad check, like you can't <laughs> shop here anymore. Yeah. Dang, <laughs> shit! Four I remember months? that. Okay. Yeah. All so right. she got put away for four months. Okay. And then after that, she went to another county, Riverside County, which. Was against the terms of her probation, mm. so immediately violated her right. probation. Yeah, her recidivism rate was like hundred <laughs> percent. We know this from the beginning. Then, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> for sure. By nineteen fifty-two, she had met another man, and they married. His name was Axel Johansson. I was gonna say if it's Axel Rose, I'm gonna be super jealous because I had a big crush on him. But that would have been way before <gasps> that was his time. Way before, yeah. yes. Axel, if you're out there listening, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) They met, got married, and in an interview when she was in prison Mm -hmm. with a journalist, uh, she told him that Axel is the brother of Ingmar Johansson, which is the late heavyweight boxing champ. Now, when this journalist looked into it, the obituary for Ingmar Johansson listed that his sole surviving brother was a, a man named Rolf. So, you know, that Not was bullshit. Not even close. Yeah. That was a total lie. Wow. Yeah. So, they got married. They moved to Sacramento and lived in the city off and on for the next decade. Mm-hmm. Ever have any kids with him? Um, I don't think so. Okay, so no more kids. She just had the two, so now yeah. she's just like getting these men, just drawing them in. No yep. kids. Okay. It I was see. a really tumultuous marriage. Well, I mean, if you start Lots out of, lying, I could see that. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, frequently arguing. There were separations. Most of it was, of course, brought on by Dorothea and uh, her drinking, gambling, mm. and, of course, other men. Mm. Yeah, You know, there still you whoring around. There you go. Still Drinking, gambling, up. and fucking. There you go, Dorothea. <laughs> That'll get you every time. Every time. <laughs> and, Mm-mm-mm. plus, Axel, his work took him away. It took him out of town a lot. Oh, well, she was probably so, just living it up. When he'd come back, he would find other men living with her. Yeah. Literally in the house. He would walk in. How's he not, like, in trouble for killing them and her? I know. She must have been a bad bitch. That's all I know. Uh, Shit. uh, Apparently, he knew that neighbors 
like complained a lot that there were taxis that showed up at the house at strange hours and would drop men off to visit her. Mm. The court files indicated that his wife, Johansson, had committed Dorothea to a psychiatric ward in 1961, and the doctors placed her on antipsychotics. Which she probably quit taking, right? I'm sure. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. God. Yep. Little Dorothea, she's not baking anybody any treats anymore. <laughs> her husband had her committed, and this was a year after the Sacramento police had actually busted her in a raid on a residential brothel. Supposedly, she so was... So, she's like the Heidi Fleiss before there was a Heidi Fleiss. Yeah. Because supposedly, mm. she owned this brothel. Okay. So she wasn't even the madam. She was the... She ran she was, that okay. shit. Yeah. Uh-huh. She, um... And it, it, they fronted it as a bookkeeping service. <laughs> Bring me your taxes. I'll do those while you get your dick sucked in the back. Okay. <laughs> Can you imagine? Happy ending. I mean, <laughs> wow. She was like ballsy. I mean, this is crazy. For real. Wow. And so at this point, she's probably in her 20s, would you say? Uh, let's see. In the 60s, probably late 20, maybe 30s. Okay. Well, yeah. Old enough to know better. Oh, for okay. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Right. Okay. I'm following. She um, was convicted of owning and managing a brothel, even though she denied it. Right. She always denied it. Oh, don't they always? <laughs> I'm not fucking anybody. I'm just no. doing their taxes. Yeah. Uh, well, she claimed that she was there visiting a friend when the raid happened. And Are that you she serious? Had, yes, and that she had nothing to do with it. She's like... This house isn't even mine. I don't know. I'm just here. It might be my name, but it's not mine. Come on, lady. Get your lie better than that. I know. Wow. Yeah. How how it came about was an undercover cop posed as a trucker. And he arrested her because she offered to perform fellatio on him. Oh. Mm. That yeah. Fellatio would always get you. <laughs> That's why you don't do it, ladies. You stay away from that bad dick. <laughs> yes. So, she ended up serving 90 days in county lockup. That's it? Yep. Wow. 90 Man, days. I need to live back in the day. You can get away with anything. You could, yeah. I mean, it's almost like some things you got in a lot more trouble for. And but then, then other things, you were just like, slap on the wrist. Exactly. You know? That's crazy. Axel ended up divorcing Dorothea in 1966. Wow. I don't blame him. Two years later, she actually got her third husband. Roberta. I can't even get a boyfriend. How does this lady get three husbands in just a few years? Because she's like putting her vagina out there for everybody. Here you go. Come on, guys. I'm ready. (laughs) Shit. I mean, that's crazy. Three husbands. I feel like back in the day, she... I don't know. She... She had some... I I don't know what her deal was. She had something going on. She had something... Something, something. So, Roberto Puente, in 1968, they were married. Okay. And at 39, at the time, she was 16 years older than him. So, he she got herself a young one. So, she was 16 years his senior. 19 years. 19? Or, wait, no, sorry, 16, oh, yeah. Oh, shoo, okay. I mean, Woo. That, that's 16, still enough. That's yeah, enough. that's still a lot. So, he was a Mexican immigrant. And supposedly, 
he was only interested in money and American citizenship, and that was the only reason he married her. He, they ended up married, of course, lived in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. um, they actually separated a year later in 1969. That wasn't long. No. Red that flags. was a very short-lived marriage. Yep. Shortly after that, she opened her first boarding house. Mm. And it was, of course, unlicensed. Mm, imagine that. Not legal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it thrived. She, you know, made it successful and was putting all this money into political campaigns and charitable causes. Like she so she's donated. like the female Ted Bundy, putting her name out there and getting involved in things. Yeah. Like he did. Like with, how he was with yeah, the Republican with, Party yeah. and he attended, okay. you know, the national conventions yeah. and all that. Yeah. So she's like, oh, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm so sweet. And yes. Mm. She had this front that she put up that, you know, she was this sweet lady who was so charitable and, you know, Ended up making all these contributions, made her appear legitimate, mm -hmm. and it gave her access to all these elite circles. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> she claimed that she spent time in the 70s with California governors Pat Brown and Jerry Brown and Ronald Reagan. Hmm. She <clears throat> recalled the, the future president and his first wife, Jane Wyman, as her good friends. We know what that means. Yeah. Threesome. <laughs> and when she was asked about um, Reagan's second wife, she said, you know, me and Nancy, we never got along. Probably because Nancy wasn't down with that shit. She's like, mm-mm, no, Ron, we ain't doing that. Mm. Uh, I, okay. So I don't think mm. Nancy was that feisty. No, definitely not. <laughs> she was definitely more reserved. There's very little evidence to suggest that she actually ever even socialized with Reagan. When he divorced his first wife, Dorothea was 20 years old and was living in the Bay Area. Mm. So, she also liked to tell this story. There's that, reason to doubt her, for sure. Yeah. About oh. That. Oh. Yeah. I mean, given all the other lies that she's already right. told. Yeah. She, um, in an interview, also said that she used to be a rocket. And the story... now we could find facts for that. Oh, like, and there aren't any. So the story went that she was shopping at a department store called the Emporium in San Francisco in 1948. Mm -hmm. And she was 19 at the time. And she said that someone tapped on her shoulder and the man identified himself as a talent scout for the Radio City Rocket. He on the spot invited her to fly east and audition and of course, she had no formal dance training, and but she said she went that she went there and they hired her. And after that, she was in New York on Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and then she would go back to California for the rest of the week. Hmm, I smell something fishy here. Yeah, she said she performed on stage as Sharon Nyarda, and that she balanced her dance career with a second job as a cook in a San Francisco seafood restaurant. Okay, so she's a rocket, she's a cook, she's a madam, she's a prostitute. Like, I mean, <laughs> she's done she's it a all. Forger. She This is crazy. Yeah. Wow. So, supposedly she was going back and forth between the coast to coast, mm -hmm. east and west. Um, and then her career in dancing suddenly came to an end in 1957. She said that she was on stage and the girl next to her 
broke her heel and bumped into her and they both fell into the orchestra pit and she broke her leg and the other dancer was paralyzed. Mm, now, I don't know, Dorothea girl, if I believe that or not. I well, looking into the Rockettes Alumni Association, there was no record of someone named either Sharon Nyarda or Dorothea McFall at the time was her married name performing with the company and there's no record of two dancers falling into an orchestra pit. So you know that's probably all. Oh, bullshit. for sure. Just yeah. Total lies. Wow. Yeah. She's been like she's got some issues. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dorothea, but you got issues, girl. But you know, she had such strong ties to the Hispanic communities in California, like from all of her charitable contributions. They probably they never loved questioned her. it, right? Oh, yeah, they loved mm, her. I could see that. I mean, yeah. But she would also tell people that she was born in Mexico. She would use, you know, the name Puente as her own, that she was born But in- it wasn't her own. Mm-mm. Wow. So, she also was married to another na- a man named Pedro Montalvo. So, she so would use... So, this is husband number f- four? Uh-huh. Husband number four. At some point, he falls in there. Um, wow. I can't even get like a second date. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> I don't get this. Dorothea, if you're out there, come well. give me some pointers in my dreams, bitch. I need your help. Damn. Okay, husband number four. Yeah, so she would claim Mexico was she was born. And she would use either the last name of Puente or Montalvo. And she donated to a ton of Hispanic arts and education programs. Okay, well, you know, I'll give her some some credit for that. That was good that she did that. Yeah, I mean, she provided medical care to her boarders and other patients. Here, I'll give you some health insurance, but I'm going to steal all your money, right? right? Yeah, all the while (laughs) she claimed that she was a nurse in World War II. What? Yeah, she would tell people (laughs) that she had been a nurse in World War II. And that she would provide... Med- I guess she was the one providing cheap medical, medical care. care. Because mm. she told people she used to be a nurse. This gets worse every time I hear something else about her. Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't be friends with you, Dorothea. Not like this. No, girl. <laughs> so, the, she had an attorney who handled a lot of her legal stuff before she was arrested in 1988. His name was Donald Dorfman. And he said... She was a respected figure uh, to the Mexican community. Mm-hmm. He drew up her will years ago, and apparently before she died, he, she sent him Christmas cards every year. Um, Christmas and he, cards and fudge. There you go. <laughs> Serial he, killer 101. He always thought she was innocent of the murders. Really? Yes. He argued that her crimes were just cashing the benefit check. So he's saying that she brought these people in. They just happened to die, and, and she the, continued to cash their checks. That she didn't kill them; they just died. Oh, you're still a criminal! <laughs> <laughs> like that's still really wrong. He so was, he was quoted as saying, "I'm certain they were just dying of natural causes, and she started burying them so she could keep the checks coming. It was a money making scheme, but I do not believe that she was a murderer. She really had people snowed." Wow. Amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. So, while she was running this boarding house Mm -hmm. in the 70s, she ended up, you know, getting a real strong relationship with all the social workers in town. 
And she's probably like, send me everybody you got. I got oh, room. The I'll worst take ones. care of them. Yeah. She would take the worst ones. And oh. they loved her because she was so willing to take in the alcoholics and the drug addicts and the ones that nobody else wanted. Exactly. Probably. Yeah. The ones that had the most issues. Other difficult clients, like she would take them all in. Of course, this business helped her get a steady revenue, but apparently that wasn't enough for her. So, so she greedy. Yeah, of course. She's apparently always been greedy. I mean, look at how much trouble she's already been in. Greedy little Dorothea. So she ended up having a nasty little habit of forging the signatures of the tenants on their benefit checks before signing them over to herself. What? So she's getting the checks in the mail. Uh Uh-huh. Pretending like she's the tenant. Uh Uh-huh. Endorsing it to herself. Yep. And taking the money. I don't even have any words. I know. So, she ended up getting caught for that in 1978 and was arrested. That should have been a rat right there, you you know? I know. She ended up getting five years federal probation. Let me guess. Good behavior. And she was, like, prohibited from operating a boarding house. I feel like there's going to be something coming up telling me that she had another boarding house. (laughs) You know she did. But, in the meantime, she... um, Started working as an in-home caregiver. That's like being like telling a crack addict you want to sell crack. (laughs) (laughs) You don't do that. I know. She's working as an in-home caregiver and apparently drugged three women with tranquilizers to steal their checks, their money, and their valuables from their homes in the early 80s. Where is she getting these tranquilizers? I mean, back then you could probably get it on the street. I mean, I guess. Unless she had a connection somewhere, but... You could probably be like... I don't know how easily accessible this stuff was back in the day, but... So she drugged them, stole all their stuff, and then just dipped out. Yep. Wow. There was a a a retired social worker that... Her name was Mildred Ballinger. Um, She first met Dorothea in the late 70s when she was working as an in-home caregiver. Apparently, she lied to this lady and told her she had cancer. So, Dorothea said she had cancer. Yeah. She acted like she was, you know, dying of cancer. And oh, my last wish is to take care of all these people because I'm <laughs> dying of cancer. I'm such a good person. At some point, Mildred began to suspect that, you know. Something wasn't right. Yeah, Dorothea's kind of a liar. Mm-hmm. She started talking to her fellow, you know, social workers and telling them, you know, you need to steer clear of this woman. Don't Something send anybody to right. her. Don't let her take care of anybody. Yup. Mm-hmm. A lot of them disregarded that. There's whether they didn't believe it or whatever, they just disregarded it. They kept sending her, you know, alcoholics, drug addicts, mentally ill. And this is after she has been told. Even you cannot mm-hmm. operate anything. You can't take care of anybody. Yep. But yet somehow she's doing this again. Yes. Wow. She was released. <laughs> I guess she went to prison for drugging the women uh, in the 80s and was released in 1985. Well, that wasn't long. Yeah. Even after she was released from prison, the social workers and homeless advocates continued to send people to her. They they were just totally unaware that she was a, a con running a boarding house without a license. I just wonder if it was like 
on their part out of sight out of mind like i've got you somewhere i don't care like you go there you like know, they have such a hard time with yes these, getting these cases mm -hmm. home the worst cases they're probably like look whatever you go there i'm gonna pretend like i don't know yeah i mean that's totally messed up if that was the case but yeah. i can't imagine them not knowing you know and what if you were that person's family oh yeah like that would be horrible yeah they should be held responsible along with crazy dorothea Oh my gosh. So there was this man named William Clausen. His mother, her name was Ruth Monroe. Mm -hmm. She went into business with Dorothea in April of 1982. Okay. She leased and ran a restaurant on the side of the Round Corner Tavern in Midtown. So the following spring, her husband was actually hospitalized with terminal cancer. And this lady, Ruth, was 61 years old and she moved in with Dorothea to save money. Mm-hmm. Within... Yeah, she's probably thinking, oh, sweet little Dorothea, let me live mm -hmm. with her. We'll bake cakes and drink tea together. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dorothea She's so sweet and generous. She'll take good care right? of it. Yeah. While she's drugging people in the basement, burying Within them. Within two weeks of her moving in, Ruth became ill. And her body was so weak, she couldn't even stand. I mean, she would struggle. And this was the lady that was well that husband had cancer. Yes. Mm. Her son, William, checked on her in April of 1982. And when he saw his mom, who just was suddenly so ill, mm -hmm. and who rarely drank alcohol, was sipping a creme de menthe, she told him that Dorothea had given it to her to help calm her down. It's probably freaking antifreeze. Something like that. <laughs> Dang. So, uh, you know, he was like, it didn't seem right. Yeah. Well, it's out, out of character yeah, for her. But Dorothea had conned everybody in the family into mm -hmm. thinking she was a nurse. She was telling people, I was a nurse in World War II. They thought, you know, she knew what she was doing. Right. They're like, she knows, okay. Help her keep her calm, keep her relaxed, yeah. you know. Four days after that, Ruth died. Wow. At Dorothea's house how quickly she went downhill i mean her whole family was just perplexed about the whole thing like they they couldn't understand you know what happened so they read the coroner's report i was gonna just about to say did like autopsies not exist then or oh, what they did. okay yeah, they did and the death was actually labeled a suicide caused by an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen Really? The active ingredient in Tylenol. Tylenol mm -hmm. and cough syrup, right? Yeah. Codeine. Codeine. Wow. So the family... Mm, that's some creme de menthe. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, a hell of a creme de menthe. Mm -hmm. Where'd you get that recipe, Dorothea? <laughs> Dang. That'll definitely put you out if you're not Ooh. feeling good. I can't imagine what that would be like as the kid to be like, this is so out of character. Well, and... yeah. The, whole, the family suspected that, you know, Dorothea poisoned her. They suspected it was mm -hmm. her and that it wasn't a suicide. I mean, how are you going to prove that back then? You know, like that would probably be hard yeah. to do. Yeah. Well, and even after that, like their theory that Dorothea done it, it, it actually got a little bit of merit to it because they Thank discovered goodness. that after the funeral, Dorothea drained thousands of dollars from a joint business bank account that she had with Ruth. What? Yeah, she pulled all the thousands of dollars out of that account. I mean, come on, Dorothea. You got to be smarter than that. Like, you can't be like, oh, she died. Let me take all of her money. Like, did that raise any red flags to anyone other than the family? No. What? No. 
Yeah, and after, you know... Look, I'm just going to say it. Being a cop during that time would have been the easiest fucking job ever, because right? Because they didn't seem to do their jobs Nothing. very well. Jesus. That's crazy. Yeah. In 1982, in the summer, mm-hmm. so she died in April, In later on that summer, they noticed an article that um, Dorothea had been convicted on theft and forgery charges related to her drugging for elderly people. Those people, you know, that she drugged right. and robbed. Yeah. And they went to the authorities and wanted their mother's death, you know, re-examined. And a probe ended into the investigation actually upheld the suicide ruling. What? Yeah. What were cops doing back then? Fucking snorting coke and, like, <laughs> drinking? Like, I mean, that is insane to me. Yeah. Oh, well, there's a lot of these killers out there that, you know, I've watched these documentaries on, and I'm just like, how? How do they get... Well, what? and it's like the sun, you know, only after they found all those bodies in right. her yard, then they charged her. I mean, if you're going to be a Ruth serial Smarter. killer, 70s and 80s is where it was that at, was, right? Yes. Or before that. Yes. But, I mean, because everybody was high and drunk, you know? It's just <laughs> yeah. like, whatever. That's insane. Yeah. Only after they found those bodies did they charge her with the murder of Ruth. And it's like her son said, you know, if she had been held accountable originally for murdering his mom, then there probably wouldn't have been any other victims. There could have been so many people saved. Yes. So it's like, at this point, you have to like, you can't, yes, you blame Dorothea because she's a piece of shit, but you also have to be like... Blame the authorities, too. Yeah. You know? Because they kind of dropped the ball on it. They dropped dropped the the ball. ball, They dropped the fucking (laughs) cannonball. I mean, (laughs) that's insane. Yeah. Wow. And a few weeks after that, there was a pensioner, a a little old man named Malcolm McKenzie, that accused Dorothea of drugging and robbing him. But he lived. He lived. Yeah. And went to the police and said, she did this to me. Yes. So, what they, they do to her then? So, that's when she was arrested in 1982. And a superior court judge sentenced her to five years in prison at the California Institution for Women in Corona. So, basically, just like a little day camp. Well, probably. yeah. I mean, she was sentenced to five years, but she only served three because good behavior. Oh, imagine that. So, of course, she immediately goes back. I mean, good behavior because she doesn't have anybody to steal from. Yeah, she... she, she doesn't have access to the drugs to drug them. Right. You know. She's just like living life. Oh, I'm just, so nice. Yeah. I'm so sweet. I didn't do it. Well, that's because you don't have anybody to freaking kill here, crazy. Oh my gosh, yeah. She served her time. Well, she served most of her time. She got out in three years. Um, and then she went back to Sacramento. And her federal probation, of course, was extended out to 1990 due to her conviction. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like she gives a shit about her probation. Right. Like, she's I mean, where's the, where's the officers? I mean, but back then, who knows what the, the caseload they had were, too. You know, they could have had hundreds of people. I true. mean, um, this is, that's crazy. She was evaluated by a state psychologist before she was released. Uh-huh. And he diagnosed her as schizophrenic. And he wrote, this woman is a disturbed woman who does not appear to have remorse or regret for what she has done. Well, clearly, if you keep doing the same thing over and over, right? (laughs) Yes. She's to be considered dangerous and her living environment and or employment should be closely monitored. 
I agree. Yeah. Should have been shut down a long time but ago. But do you think she was? Doubt it. Nope. While she was in prison and serving her time, mm-hmm. she became pen pals with this 77-year-old man named Everson Gilmouth. Oh, Lord. Gilmouth. Lord help. On the day that she was released, he was there picking her up in a 1980 Ford pickup truck. So, okay, wait. Hold on. Let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. Dorothea's been married four times? Like four times, yeah. She's in prison. And she's already got number five? (laughs) Yes. She was a pen pal with this guy and... They traded correspondence. And I might get two Snapchats from somebody and she's being <laughs> pen pals in prison. <sighs> Teach me your ways, Dorothea. In prison. This is crazy. Yeah, so he was there. He picked her up the day she was released. Never met her before. No. And picked her up out of prison. Yeah. And like they was they were high speed in their relationship, like Really quickly. I mean, that's like zero to a thousand. Oh, for sure. Because they were already making wedding plans and they opened up a joint bank account. Oh, mistake number one, dude. (laughs) Oh my God. I can already tell where this is going and I don't like it. uh Uh-huh. A year later after her release, of course, she still didn't have a license. She was violating her probation. She opened another boarding house. (sighs) And there was enough space there for about eight tenants. The probation officers would come and visit her. At the house? Yes. Knowing she's running this. They didn't know. They went there for two years and never suspected that she ran a business. They just thought she lived there? Yeah. They they said that, you know, she was so kind and her home was clean. And she would lie and say that the people staying in the house were friends or guests. I, I mean, I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. They never suspected a thing and they were in the house regularly for two years. Oh my God. This is crazy. Yeah. So in November of 1985, she hired a man by the name Ismael Flores to install wood paneling in her home. So she she obviously still has ties to the Hispanic community at this point. And they're still protecting her and believing in her. Oh, I'm sure. Wow. So she paid him $800 and she gave him a red 1980 Ford pickup in good condition. Wait, wait. She said, here, let me just give you a truck? Yes. She told um, him. Red flag. Did it? Thousand. She said it was her boyfriend's who lived in Los Angeles and that he didn't need it any longer. Now, you remember her being picked up from yes. prison. Yes. Yeah. She also asked Ismail to build her a box six feet by three feet so she can store books and other junk in it. Wait, what? (laughs) Yes. Six feet? That's like the size of a human. Yeah. Six feet by three feet. Yeah. I don't know many people that have that many books. (laughs) I mean, I got a lot of books, but not... And you're probably not going to store them in a box like that. No. And this guy didn't like, or or was he like, okay, something doesn't add up. No. No, he did it. What? Yes. He built it. And then she, she, she nailed it shut. She asked him um, to transport this box to a storage depot. And she went with him. 
And on the way there, she asked him to stop while they were on Garden Highway in Sutter County and dump the box on the riverbank. And it's an unofficial household dumping site. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. Hey, Heather, I need you to build me this box. I'm going to put my books in it, and then we're going to go drop it off at the storage unit. Oh, hold on. Wait. Stop here. (laughs) I'm going to dump this on the side of the road. In a riverbank. You know. And he questioned it. and she Well, I was going to say, if yeah, he didn't no, question that. He, he did. But she told him that the contents in there, it was all just junk. And I guess she didn't want to take it to the storage depot. It was just better to just dump it. Let's at, just leave it on the side of the road. Forget littering and trash and all that, right? Yeah. What a time to be alive. Oh, no. That was in November. And on January 1st of 1986... A fisherman spotted that box about three feet from the bank and informed police. So the investigators found a badly decomposed and unidentifiable body of an elderly man. Shocker! Yeah. Of course those remains belonged to Everson Gilmuth, but they actually would not identify those remains for three more years. Yeah. Three yeah. years? Mm-hmm. I guess he was... That decomposed? I, I assume. Well, and I'm assuming back I then, mean, DNA, all that, it's not like it is yeah, now. Yeah, no, they didn't have, uh, I guess, the wow, DNA. three instead. years? Yeah. So she's just out here living the good life for three years. Yeah. She, she wow. actually continued to collect his pension. She would write letters to his family explaining the reasons that he hadn't been in touch with them and that he was ill and all this stuff. And during this time... She, of course, continued to house elderly and disabled tenants. She took in, like, a total of 40, most of whom were alcoholics and drug addicts. Wow. So, while they none, all... none of the while, probation, nobody's no, saying anything. No, nothing. You know what? They're as much... They're not as much to blame as her, but that is... I mean, that's unacceptable. Yeah. That's... I mean, that you're in that house. You're you're seeing these people. You're seeing her. And you're not... her qu- history. Knowing her history, you're not questioning it. She's telling you, oh, this is a guest, or, oh, that's family. And you're just taking her at her word, knowing that's that she's... That's being lazy. A, you're a, she's a compulsive liar. Lazy at your yeah, job. Exactly. She took in all these tenants, and while they were living there, she would read their mail... She took any money and social security checks that they received. She would pay each of them a monthly stipend. But she that would... sounds like marriage. <laughs> <laughs> you get a thousand. Oh, here I'll take six hundred. You get four hundred. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Dorothy. Yeah. I see you. So Crazy she bitch. she would keep the rest, and she would claim that they were expenses for the boarding house. Oh, so she's charging them rent. Yeah, and then you know. Uh, who she, knows what she would give them a little bit of money, or whatever. Yeah, and, just a stipend to live on. Yes, and wow. but she knew because they were drug addicts and alcoholics that she they would squander what mm-hmm. little bit they had at the nearest bar. Well, and I'm sure if anyone questioned her, she would just be like, "I'm keeping it so they don't spend it on uh-huh. drugs and try uh-huh. to play it off like yeah. I'm the martyr. I'm so sweet and innocent." Yes, Damn. and. These people, when they would go and squander that money at the bars and stuff, they would get picked up by police and jailed for 30 days following anonymous tips. Hi, this is Dorothea. (laughs) I need to report someone. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. She was coming at them at all angles. Yes. And and then while they're sitting in jail, she would just pocket the rest of their money. And, you know, she was making a good profit by doing that. I can't imagine how much she was making. her greedy ass wanted more. So, she started to cruise bars looking for new customers. 
Like looking what? looking for pensioners to take advantage of. Yeah. So how's that conversation start? Hey, um, my name is Dorothea. Are you by any chance a drug addict or an alcoholic that like doesn't have Are somewhere to live? Are you drawing social security? <laughs> like she'd go looking for the old men, I guess. Lord. And there was some suspicion that kind of first came about. Um, some neighbors noticed odd activities of a homeless alcoholic that was only known as Chief. Um, Puente was telling people, you know, that she quote unquote adopted him. And made him her personal handyman. Okay. So she took in Chief, and she had him doing projects around the house. Mm -hmm. But it turned out she was having him do some kind of weird shit. So she had him... Building boxes for bodies, maybe? I mean... He was digging in the basement, and he would cart soil and stuff away in a wheelbarrow. And at the time, the basement floor was covered with a concrete slab. Later on, Chief took down a garage in the backyard and installed a fresh concrete slab there as well. But soon after... Mm, That's not suspicious at all. No. Soon after that, Chief disappears. He's gone too? He's gone. He disappeared. Did Chief dig his own grave? I would not be surprised. Oh my lord. There was this street counselor by the name of Judy Moise. And she worked for an organization called Volunteers of America. So her job was to make sure that, you know, the homeless people in Sacramento mm-hmm. had help. They received their benefits and services that they were entitled to. And one of the people that she helped was a man, 51 years old, Alvaro Montoya. Everybody called him Bert. Okay. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, whatever. that's not Bert. neither here nor there, but okay, Bert. Yeah. All right, Bert and Ernie. Cool, whatever. Bless his heart. He was mentally disabled and schizophrenic, <sighs> and he spent a lot of his time having loud arguments in Spanish with the voices in his head. But they said, you know, Bert was a gentle man. He was almost childlike. Yeah. And he wasn't a danger to anybody. Mm-hmm. Living on the streets, of course, was not a good place for right. him to be. Um, sometimes he would sleep at a a detox center, but Judy thought that, you know, he needed to be somewhere better. And luckily, she knew there was a boarding house Mm. at 1426 And I bet Dorcia just had one little room open, Mm -hmm. didn't she? It was so popular with social workers, and they knew no one would be turned away from there. Well, we know why. Yeah. So, you know, and she knew that a lot of the people who lived there had a lot of problems. There was Mm -hmm. a man by the name of James Gallup, a 62-year-old man who was suffering from a brain tumor. There was a 64-year-old Dorothy Miller, who was a long-term alcoholic. Betty Palmer and Leona Carpenter both were 78 years old. They were unable to fend for themselves. I mean, so basically this is like the worst of the worst where people literally need help just to survive yes and there's nowhere else for them to go no basically yeah so i mean it was really difficult to home these people somewhere so they're just like let's ignore her past they i don't even know do you think they even knew i don't even think they knew so they just sent them all there basically to die i mean i I don't know if they all died but i I, we're gonna find that out they she she was like, you know, no matter what a person's problems were, their mental state, addictions, they were always welcome at 1426 F Street. Mm. 
And, you know, the boarding house was run by this little white-haired landlady in her 70s, and she was known for her charitable work, donating money and clothing to the needy. She employed paroled prisoners from the local halfway house to do repairs and other work that was needed. She knew how to work the system, and she was really good at getting money and benefits for her boarders. I mean, to anybody who doesn't know her past, that's just like... You would think she was amazing. A, a martyr. That's yeah. like perfect. Like, just oh, she's going to... Yeah. wonderful little lady who wants to do nothing but help people. Right. Yeah. When really it was the total opposite, apparently, oh God, sounds yeah. like. It was... Oh. February 3rd, 1988, Bert um, started living at the boarding house. And at this time, some of the other residents had moved out. So, James, Betty, Dorothy, and Leona were all gone, which is unusual. Right. Because, you know, some of them come and go. Right. Probably maybe rehab, get better, move on. A lot of them were considered, like, transients. I could see that. So, and sometimes, you know, some of them would move out to be with relatives. Some Mm -hmm. of them just went somewhere else. A couple days after Bert moved in, another resident by the name of Vera Faye Martin, who was 62 years old, she moved away. And the following April, another boarder, 55-year-old Benjamin Fink, like Dorothy Miller, who was a long-term alcoholic, also left after a heavy drinking binge. hmm Bert was apparently thriving under Dorothea's care. Really? Yeah. He was healthier, and his hair was neatly cut. He was clean. He was neatly dressed. Like, Judy was really happy for him. Mm-hmm. She thought she'd found him, you know, this the amazing... perfect place, yeah. probably. Yeah. All throughout the summer while he lived there, things were great. And then Judy actually got a message that Bert had traveled down to Mexico. Judy calls Dorothea, and she was like, you know, what's going on? Dorothea tells her, don't worry. You know, Bert should be back within the next few days. Mm-hmm. But a few weeks went by, and by early November, Judy still hadn't heard anything from Bert. She was really starting to get concerned. Right, because that seems out of character for him. Yeah. I not. mean, he's he's a mentally disabled yeah. schizophrenic who has a childlike mind. I mean, he's not going to go traveling right, on his own. exactly. Especially out of the country. No. He probably couldn't even go to the corner store to get oh. a, a gallon of water. I oh. mean, he's not going to go to Mexico and survive. I mean. Obviously. She gets a hold of Dorothea again, and Dorothea, you know, she tells her she's worried, and she was considering to call the police. A day or so later, um, Judy got a strange phone call. A man claiming to be a relative of Bert told her that Bert was with him in Utah. Judy's suspicions, you know, kind of high. The hairs are yeah, standing the, up. She's yeah. getting a little spidey sense at this point, mm-hmm. I'm sure. He originally introduced himself as Don Anthony, but then he changed his name to something different really quickly. Mm. So that kind of, you know, set off her spotty senses a little bit. Mm -hmm. Judy then, of course, calls Dorothea, and Dorothea confirmed the story, telling Judy that on Sunday while she was out at church, a relative of Bert's came to the house and collected him and left a note for Dorothea. Mm. How convenient. Mm. You know, Judy still wasn't convinced. It just, it was not adding up for Mm -hmm. her. In turn, she called the police. And Officer Richard Ewing listened to what Judy told her, and he agreed to go to 1426 F Street to see what was going on. Judy told him to talk to one of the residents, John Sharp. Judy knew that what Sharp would tell the cop would be a reliable. Right. 
So he was a 64-year-old retired cook who had been living at that boarding house for about 11 months. And unlike the other residents there, he wasn't an alcoholic or a drug addict, and he was not mentally disabled. Mm, that probably saved his life. This is true. Yeah. she He wasn't one that she could probably easily pull the wool right, over his exactly. eyes and take or advantage. Or pull the wool over everyone else and yeah. be like, oh, he just left, you know, just wandered away, yeah. got picked up. So what happened when the police went? They so, talked to him. Officer Ewing went to the house. He met with Dorothea. Mm -hmm. Of course, she repeated her story that she had told Judy about the relative that had come and taken Bert away. John was standing there with them, and he confirmed the story. The officer left the house. Mm -hmm. He was satisfied. And he hadn't gone far when John Sharp actually caught up with him and handed him a note asking him to meet at another location far from the house. Mm, so, this is where it gets interesting. Yeah. So the officer Ewing agreed and they met later. Because you could take that of one of two ways. Like, okay, this guy knows something. I need to talk to him. Or this guy has issues and I don't want to be alone with him. Right. Thank goodness he trusted his gut, right? Yeah, exactly. And wanted to talk to him. Yeah. When they met... What he told Officer Ewing was a little bit disturbing. He said that all the tenants had been told by Dorothea to repeat that story of the relative, but it was not true. And then he added more. He told him that there were dragging sounds. Dragging? That, yes. On the night that Benjamin Fink moved out of the house. Hmm. And he was also saying that there were strange holes that were being dug in the backyard. Well, I'm telling you, it ain't for cabbage. No. Right? <laughs> or carrots. She's not, uh, she's not she planting. She ain't a gardener. She's, nope. She's not mm. planting a garden. And he told him that there was this awful smell that was coming from one of the rooms upstairs. From one of the rooms? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Lord. The cop, he, he heard enough of that. He... So, he called um, Detective Sergeant John Cabrera of the Sacramento Missing Person and Homicide Bureau. Cabrera started looking into the background of Dorothea. Mm -hmm. According to the file, he, she was not in her 70s like she claimed. Why would you want to claim to be older? Right? Because she was actually only 59. Like, who wants to claim to be 70? I mean, I want to be like 21 again. Right? I want like, people to think that I'm younger, yeah. not older. But I guess that added to her persona. Oh, I'm sure it did. It was more of the little old lady, so mm. sweet, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah, and he also found out, of course, she was on federal parole. Mm -hmm. And he seen, you know, at least on four occasions, she opposed as a nurse and had administered drugs to her elderly patients. While they were unconscious, she rifled in their belongings, stole their jewelry, blank checks, credit cards, whatever she could get her hands on, actually. So, she stole, like, personal effects, too. Mm -hmm. Jewelry and all yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Wow. Whatever she could get her hands on. And, you know, they caught her in 1982 because she was trying to run. She had a ticket to Mexico in her mm -hmm. bag, so she was trying to get out. So, he found out all this, you know, that she was sentenced to five years in prison. She was released on three for good behavior. Friday, November 11th. Detective Cabrera, along with Detective Terry Brown, and also a parole agent whose name was James Wilson, they paid a visit to 1426 F Street, and they talked to Dorothea. And, you know, she she seemed very forthcoming and oh, opening. Oh, I'm sure. She probably spun it somehow. Oh, 
she was very opening and you know the detectives asked if they could take a quick look around and she told them that that's fine yeah oh come on yeah sure look around just don't look under the concrete (laughs) (laughs) so they found two prescription bottles in her room one was empty and on the floor and the other was open and it contained blue capsules and the name on the bottles was dorothy miller not Dorothea so, Puente. No. But Dorothy. Dorothy Miller. Miller. So mm. Cabrera showed these bottles to Dorothea and asked her, who's Dorothy Miller? Dorothea said that, you know, Dorothy was a relative who had recently stayed with her. And, mm. you know, she must have left those bottles behind by accident. Whatever. Right. And the detectives found her to be very believable. <sighs> yeah. Then... Wow. Detective Cabrera asked Dorothea if she'd be okay with them digging in the backyard. What? Once again, she was really cooperative and she said, yeah, that'll be okay. She's probably thinking, I'm not going to get caught. Like, there's no way. I don't know how she could think that, but I mean, yeah. They're, I mean. So they, they got some shovels out of the car and they started digging. And it didn't take them long. They actually hit, they hit a tree root. And they tried to move it. And it, it wasn't moving, so Cabrera... Yeah, you can't just, like, move a tree root, so, so, yeah. Yeah, he gets in the hole, and he gets grip on it, and when he pulls, suddenly it came loose, and it pulled up from the ground, and the men looked at it, and they realized, that's not a root, but a leg bone. What? Yeah, so Dorothea had come out of the house to watch them dig, and, of course, she was like... <gasps> And shocked. And her hands flew to her mouth. Like, she seemed so shaken. Oh, I can't imagine how this little old bitty spun that. Uh Oh, Oh, like Scarlet O'Hara. Oh, I'm going to faint. I hear you, Dorothea. That's crazy. Yeah, so they had to call in the deputy coroner. And her name was Laura Santos. She ordered the digging to stop until a forensic team could get in there. It wasn't until the next morning the digging could be resumed. And, you know, by this time... So was Dorothea just chilling at home during all uh, yeah, this? I guess. Like, technically she wasn't a suspect. Right? So they're just like, cool, we found a, a leg bone in your yard, but we're going to let you just stay here and chill? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, word started getting around that, you know, something was happening mm-hmm. at 1426 F Street. And crowds gathered around media showed up so a corpse was uncovered um but it wasn't Bert it was a small female and it had been in the ground for a while the body had actually skeletonized Mm. they continued digging and Dorothea came over to Detective Cabrera and you know she looked all shaken Mm -hmm. and like she couldn't believe what was happening and she asked if she was under arrest and of course Given that she had been so cooperative with them and had allowed them to dig and all this right. crap, he said she wasn't, and he asked her why. And so she spins this story, and she tells him that um, what's been happening has, you know, it's totally unnerved her, and she wanted to join some relatives around the corner at the coffee shop in the Clarion Hotel. So Cabrera told her that she was free to go, and he escorted her through the crowd. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Hey, I found some dead bodies in your yard. Sure, go have some coffee. Yeah. I'd be like, listen, no, we don't know. You need to stay here or I'm going to put you in cuffs you and take you downtown. Think. Like, what is what is happening? 
20 minutes after that, they find another leg. And a second body was found, of course. Because they just, when he realized... And she's out having coffee. Yeah. Having coffee, in quotations. This is when he realizes, oh, letting her go off to coffee might not have been such a good idea. You know? They go rushing to the coffee shop, and of course she's not there. Well, of course not. And by the third time... She's probably already got her fifth husband by now, as fast as she works. Yeah. By the time they found the third body in the yard, a full-scale manhunt was on for her. Like, they couldn't find her anywhere. And here's little old Dorothy in a nightgown, just like trotting through town, just like, Oh, she... oh I gotta <laughs> run away. <laughs> What the fuck? There was this social worker named Peggy Nickerson. She had sent Dorothea a total of 19 clients, like, to her home. And some of them, of course, disappeared mysteriously. Hmm. And so she was suspicious as well. And also, Dorothea's neighbors had reported the smell of rotting flesh coming from the vicinity of her home. I mean, that's like... Yeah. I mean, I smell some questionable smells from my neighbors. Usually it's like weed or like trash. But if I'm smelling like a flesh. Body, like a rotting corpse. Like, you know what death smells. I mean, yeah. you know, we're from the country. Yes. We know. That's like, you don't smell that in the city like that. No. You know, like that's not. Like, you know, when, like I said, we're from out in the country. So yes. if there's a dead animal, you smell it. It's, right. It's disgusting. You won't mistake that no, smell. No, that's not something you just confuse. Mm-mm. When she heard about that, you know, she that kind of validated her concern for those tenants that just mm-hmm. mysteriously went missing. Neighbors started to notice this foul smell. And in the summer, apparently it was so bad that the neighbors chose to endure the heat rather than turn on their air conditioners so it wouldn't bring the smell into oh, their homes. Oh, my. That's bad. Yeah. Because I don't like to be hot. Uh. So, you know, anytime somebody asked Dorothea about it, she would say that it was the sewer system was backed up. Mm. One time she said she spread fish fertilizer on her garden and her garden of dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> That's my bodies I'm growing. I'm going to put some dead fish on them. And they got a, what do they call those? Those body farms? The oh, fringes. yeah, like at Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they have a body farm there. Yes. Never been there. Don't no. want to. Actually, I think it'd be kind of cool. She would try to mask the smell, and she would dump lime and bleach into the backyard. So she was John Wayne Gacy, dumping lye on the bodies (laughs) after they're already buried. Yeah, so, and she would spray the house all over with air freshener, but, of course, you know, you're not going to mask that. You're not getting rid of that, no. No. Sorry, Dorothea. You ain't Mm. that slick. Mm. They actually ended up uncovering about six bodies. And that's... I'm assuming just the one she had buried there yeah. since she apparently dumped one in a box in the, the river or whatever. Mm-hmm. They, you know, found six more bodies while they were digging. Some were almost mummified. Like they were wrapped really tightly with cloth, bed sheets, and duct tape. One was missing its head, hands, and feet. What? Yeah. Yeah. So when Dorothea ran, she actually fled to Los Angeles. After she went to the coffee shop. Now, why would that little old lady take a head, hands, and feet? I don't know. And I don't I, I don't know if they found them If they or found not. out I, why or where they were. Yeah. Or... She goes to Los Angeles. And she meets a man in a bar who's an elderly pensioner. His Where's name... my elderly pensioner? <laughs> oh, Dorothea killed them all. Yeah. Damn. So, his name was Charles Wilgus, 
a retired carpenter. And he had went out that day to a hardware store to buy a glass cutter. Little did he know. Right. So he was sitting in a bar at this place called the Monte Carlo Tavern. And, you know, he was just at the bar having a beer. Yeah. Around, around 2 o'clock, this gray-haired woman comes in. That's it. I need gray hair. That's going to get me the man. <laughs> gray she, hair and a house coat. <laughs> she, well, she was elegantly dressed. She oh, had a, a pleated okay. skirt, red high heels. Okay, notes. Pleated skirt, red high heels. <laughs> she goes to the bar. She takes a seat at the end, and she orders a screwdriver from the bartender. Oh, dangerous yeah. screwdriver. Mm. <laughs> I see, I see you, Dorothea, giving subtle hints. I'll take a screwdriver. Next, I'll take a dead body in the yard. God. Charles calls out to her and tells her, you know, hey, the heat from the refrigerator motor comes out right where you're sitting. So the woman thanks him, and then she moves to the seat I next figured she'd to be, him. like, lifting her legs up with her skirt, like, oh, thank you. Oh, God. <laughs> Look at these gray hairs. <laughs> That's a bit much. <laughs> she um, sits down. She introduces herself as 55-year-old Donna. Oh, so now she's young again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Donna Johansson. Oh, well, that's a big change. Yeah. Donna Johansson. I mean, well, you remembered she was married to Axel, so she has all these different last names yeah. she can throw around. She's Donna Johansson, and she tells him that she had just come down to Los Angeles from Sacramento. She explained that her husband died a month before, and she was just trying to uh, escape her grief and make a new life in L.A. (gasps) Poor pitiful me. Yeah. She tells him that she had taken a cab from the bus station to the Royal Viking Motel, and the cab had driven off with four of her suitcases and her overnight bag. And all my money, too. It's all gone. (laughs) (laughs) To make matters worse, the heels of her shoes, the only ones she had, were worn down from the walking she'd done looking for a place to live. Probably from stomping in people's heads. You know, he was a nice guy. Yeah. So he actually offered to take her shoes across the street to a repair shop and have them fixed. So she accepted his offer. He took her shoes over there. To the shoe cobbler. Yeah. She gave him $3 to cover the cost. Apparently, shoe repair was cheap back then. Hmm. Yeah. He said, you know, he felt very relaxed with her. He said she seemed very thoughtful and intelligent. She was a typical grandmother type person. I feel like now in 2021, we know that's how they all are. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, skip, like sociopath. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're mean ass bitches. So, you know, we ain't like doing nothing. No. We're too mean. Yeah, but, exactly. like, it's the sweet ones you got to watch you out for. always got to watch out for the sweet ones. Yes. And the quiet ones. Yes. Oh, my God. 100%. He comes back from the repair shop. They continue to talk. Eventually, that conversation led to, like, financial matters. And he told her that, you know, he suffered from arthritis and emphysema and that he received $576 each month from Social Security. And this all happens on the first date. Like, I've been on Tinder. She just hinge man. Everything. I can't even get a kiss on the first date. And she's getting financials? <laughs> For real. <laughs> Come on, now. Now, she tells him that he could get up to $680. Oh. She seemed to know what she was talking about. They became more friendly. She persuades him to take her shopping the next day to replace all her things that she had lost. Man, are you out there? That's what I need. (laughs) How does this happen? She gets this idea. Like, and this doesn't last. I'm Charles, flabbergasted Charles, right now. He kind of starts 
feeling things are a little off. Like, so she starts telling him, hey, you know, I'm alone, you're alone, Thanksgiving's coming up, oh, yeah, and I'm okay. a really good cook. How oh. about I cook Thanksgiving dinner at your apartment? Let me serve you this bright green drink known uh, as antifreeze. Then she surprised him. She suggested they share an apartment together. This is the second day after knowing them? No. The this same the day? the same day. This I, lady has five hours and gets to move in with him? No, he doesn't agree. Well, thank you, Jesus. Somebody he, out there smart. Yeah, he, he told her, you know, I've got all I can handle right now. And he told her he'd think, <laughs> but he told her he'd think about it. And they agreed to meet the next morning. He gave her one of his business cards and she wrote her name and address on the back and she gave it to him. When he got back to his apartment, like, he kept thinking about her. But something there was, ain't right or well, something. Well, there was something about her that seemed familiar, but he just, he couldn't put his finger mm. on it. And he was like, I knew I'd seen this woman before. He was like, but I just, he couldn't place mm -hmm. it right off. Finally, it clicked where he had seen her. She was on the local news. So, he turned on the television, television and he watched the 5 o'clock news. Mm. And... He had hoped that a photograph would be shown, but of course it wasn't. And he was kind of reluctant to call the cops because he didn't want, you know, if she, if it wasn't her and right. she was innocent, he didn't want her to get involved yeah. in anything. He calls the television station and an assignment editor by the name of Gene, he drove over to Wilgus's apartment and showed him a clipping from the LA Times with a photograph of the woman that was mm -hmm. wanted. He took a long look at the woman in the photograph and he was like, mm, yeah, that, it could be her, you know? So he still wasn't 100% sure though. He Not was 100%, like, it could be. But he was like, yeah, there's mm -hmm. a really good, it could be her. The uh, editor calls the Los Angeles Police Department. And a little while later, officers went to the Royal Viking Motel. And police sergeant Paul von Lutzow knocked on the door and talked with the woman known as Donna Johansson for a few moments. And he said, you know, she didn't say much. And when I asked her for some ID, she went to her purse and got her driver's license. And the, dr the license identified her as Dorothea Puente. What? <laughs> she gave them the real license? Yeah. He said she appeared to know that we might be coming. She didn't struggle. She didn't curse us. You know, he said, usually when the police go to someone's motel room, somebody, you know, people get upset. Yeah. He said, no, she showed no emotion, almost like she expected us. He said she was really cool, really calm, not intimidated by the cops. By 1040 p.m. that night, she was in custody. She was just like, sure, here's my ID. Yeah. I, I'm, I mean, you think she just was like, okay, this is it. The gig's up. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Like, this is the end of the road. Mm -hmm. wow. But I, I still feel like she kind of thought in some way she was She wouldn't get be away. caught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They continued, of course, to dig in the yard. More bodies keep coming up. Some had only been there for a few weeks. Some of them had been there for at least a year or more. Social workers were giving the cops, you know, lists of people that mm -hmm. they had sent there. On the list were, like, John Sharp, Benjamin Fink, and one stood out to Detective Cabrera, which was Dorothy Miller, the name on the prescription bottles. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember that. She said it was her family member. Uh-huh. Of course, Dorothea didn't dig the holes, but she had hired other people to do it. We know Chief. that. Chief, yeah. yeah. 
And, you know, she told them one of them was supposedly for an apricot tree. She um, said she had contacted a nursery and they told her that she needed a hole that was four feet by four feet. I ain't never seen a tree that needs that big of a hole. Right. Right. Four feet I mean, by four especially feet. if it's like a sapling. I would say if it's a sapling, like, you got to fucking tie strings to it and stick it in the ground to yeah. get it to stay. Like, <laughs> and you, I don't think they're going to be transporting a fully grown apricot tree. No, over there, definitely so. not. And it had to be five feet deep. Uh, and no. one of the former tenants, you know, he he was talking about, you know, he was digging that hole, and he was like. I, you know, I thought that was a little deep. He was like, but now I know why. She was shoving a body down Well, yeah. And, you know, other holes have been dug by parolees from the local halfway house, including one named Don Anthony, who Puente had to call Judy, if you remember earlier, yes. for Bert, and pretended to be Bert's relative. Yeah. Dang. Accidentally gave his own name before he corrected himself. On that following Monday, the police demolished the shed, and underneath, of course, they discovered a shallow grave. A short while later, they found another one in the front garden. Of course, that corpse was the one that was missing the head, the hands, and the feet. I'm telling you, Dorothea, she had a lot more than apricot trees growing, mm. didn't she? Oh my. They, um, of course, you know, went inside the house. They started looking for stuff in the house. In plain view, they found a book that was titled, Drugs and Their Effects. Cabrera also found a driver's license that had a photograph of Dorothea, but a name that was not hers. Hmm. Shocker. Ups yeah. So upstairs, they um, went into one of the rooms and they were immediately hit by that foul the smell odor. that John Sharp had talked mm -hmm. about. It was kept by Dorothea to store the bodies while preparations were made for their disposal in what? the backyard. So, so she had a room in the house where, where she'd she would, be like, oh, she would put let me just go put my little tree here while someone digs the ground. Uh -huh. Yeah. She would keep the bodies in there until the hole was ready. And then she would... Now, who do you think took the bodies into the hole? She, she had to have someone, or do you I think, think she, she did, did it? I think she did it. So. What if she has an accomplice out there somewhere that we don't even know about? Conspiracy theory number one. <laughs> Possibly. Maybe. I mean, if she's that little, unless she had a little radio flyer wagon, <laughs> you know, I mean. Yeah. That's crazy. She would, she would store the bodies in there and sometimes they could be there for like a week or more. So, you know, they're like decomposing by that I can't time. even like stand like food in my fridge for a week oh, let alone yeah. a body i mean a body laying in there and you know <sighs> the decomposition starts and during that time between them laying there dead and when they eventually were buried of course the bodily fluids from were seeping and saturating and the carpet oh. it seeped all the way to into the floorboards and if I'm not mistaken, when I watched an episode of Ghost Adventures where they actually investigated her home. Did you see I think the thing? The, like stain, the stains? I think it's still there. I mean, because oh it's in God. the wood. I mean, uh, you're not going to get that out. That's not coming you're up. You're not, no. You're not getting rid of that. Yeah, it's still on the floor. That's like red wine on your couch. That ain't coming up. <clears throat> yeah. So, at this point, they had found seven bodies total. Four women and three men. Most of the bodies were missing their teeth. And they were too badly decomposed, and it made it almost impossible to get their fingerprints. So it was really hard to identify all mm. these people. 
The San Francisco branch of the Social Security Department sent a list to the police. It contained the names of all the people registered to that address who had been receiving benefit checks for the past three years. And, of course, you know, that list, I mean, it wouldn't specify who actually cashed the checks. Right. But it became clear what had been happening. You know, she, the days that the checks would come, Dorothea would insist on getting that mail. She would collect those checks. She would handle all the finances for all the tenants. And she was keeping... She's probably giving them peanuts to Oh, I'm sure. On. Because she was bringing in for herself about $5,000 a month. In the 80s? In the 80s. Yeah. So she was doing pretty well. Uh, yeah, I don't even bring that home now. Yeah, and they, you know, they brought in a handwriting expert, and they confirmed that, you know, it was Dorothea who had been signing the names of her tenants, including the ones that were dead. And it was at least like 60 federal and state checks that had been sent to the boarding house that she had signed over. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the names on the list... They hadn't lived at the boarding house for well over a year, but the checks kept coming because no one had reported that they had moved or they were missing. Well, who knows where she put those bodies. Yeah. I'm going to guarantee she didn't put them all in the yard. Oh, I'm sure. So. That's why it's it's thought that her number of victims could be a lot higher, like around 25. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm sure she's not going to admit to all of them, or didn't before she. So what? No. I mean, what did end up happen to her? Did she fry? Did she get? No. What happened? So the the cops, of course, said they accused her of lacing food and drink that she served her victims with a lethal mix of prescription drugs mm-hmm. and poisoned them. The coroner's office, you know, they worked really hard to try and identify those seven bodies. Eventually, they identified them all. Um, the first one was Leona Carpenter. The fourth body had some tattoos, and they were able to identify that as the body of Benjamin Fink. And they were able to get the fingerprints from two of the bodies, which was Dorothy Miller mm-hmm. and uh, Bert Montoya. So it was the body of Betty Palmer that was missing the head, the hands, and the feet. And the last two bodies were James Gallup and Vera Faye Martin. Uh, see, I don't think... I don't know what happened to the head, the hands, and the feet. Right? Where is the... Like... Don't know. Where's that at? So, as far as I know, those were not found. Were never found? Yeah. And, you know, Detective Cabrera, you know, he was like, you know, he noted how all these bodies had been buried. You know, each one of them had been wrapped in sheeting and plastic and secured with duct tape. And he... Wondered if any similarly wrapped bodies had been discovered elsewhere. Right. So, you know, Detective Cabrera sent out a bulletin to the agencies all around. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't long before he got a reply from the Sutter County Police that told him on January 1st, back in 1986, you know, this fisherman out on the Sacramento Mm -hmm. River found a homemade box on the riverbank. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that they found that body. With the books. Yes. Right. right. Quote, unquote, books. When they opened the box, they found a body wrapped in sheeting, plastic, and duct tape, the badly decomposed corpse of an elderly man. This was three years later, and they finally tied it together and identified it was the body of Everson Gilmuth. So her body count at this point was up to nine people. Little old grandma. And, you know, these bodies were so decayed. In a lot of them, the internal organs had melded together into, like, a leathery mass. What? 
a police clerk named Joy Underwood. She was sent to the morgue on one one of the nights in order to help a technician label all the evidence. And she was like, she vomited every time she saw a news report on the case. And she began to shower compulsively. Like, she felt like she could never get clean. She said, I still have the taste of death in my mouth. But little Dorothea is just like, let me stick him in my closet until oh my I got God. his, his uh, hole dug. <sighs> Leaking. What kind of person does Leaking that? Leaking into your carpet. She was. She, she said, I can't eat vegetables grown in the ground because they have dirt around them. Like the people that were dug up in her yard. That is she was crazy. Like, She's a vegetarian. And she... I don't know that anything could keep me from eating bacon, but I mean, like, that, man, that's crazy. Yeah. How did, I just don't get how this little tiny lady did this. I, look, she had to have somebody helping her. She had to. I wonder, because, I mean, this was a, I think it was like a two or three story Victorian house. There ain't no way she could carry them up and down and do all that and not have somebody hear it, right? If she wasn't. Like, strong enough or, you know, to dig the holes. How are you wrapping right. up duct taping and moving a body yeah. and covering it? I'm what? calling it right now. She had an accomplice. You know what? We're going to figure out who I mean, it is. She maybe, had to. Maybe. Chief, you think? Well, you know, she might have had them most, like the ones that were mentally. She was like, you need to do this for me. The or... mentally disabled yeah. ones that, I mean, that she wouldn't be advantage. able to, you know, recount mm-hmm. what they did to the cops. I, I mean, at this point, I wouldn't put anything past her. Yeah. She probably totally could have done that. Yeah. But I mean, I just don't think there's any way she did it all on her own. Mm, you know? I don't think she, yeah. You know, after she she was captured in L.A., you know, she was cooperative. She admitted to burying the bodies and that she continued to collect the checks. And How many them. did she admit to or did she ever say? Well, she denied that she murdered them. She insisted they all died of natural causes. Okay, so she's Ted Bundy now. Yeah. Remember, he was like, I'm not a serial killer. I'm a serial rapist. I just kill so I don't get caught. <laughs> Okay, Dorothea. Okay. We hear you. Really, though, the coroner couldn't find a clear cause of death in any of the victims. Dalmain, which uh, I told you about before, it's a, yes. it's a prescription strength sleeping pill. And it can be lethal if you take it with alcohol or other sedatives. That was found in all the bodies. I mean, it, well, I seriously doubt that they're all going to overdose on the same thing. Exactly. You know, on their own. So, you know, their assumption was they all overdosed on this Dalmain, and right. you know, she, she she mixed it in their food yeah. and their drinks. Right. You know, just like the lady earlier, Ruth, with the creme de menthe. You know yes. that she was putting the drugs. Oh, in I'm there. sure the acetaminophen, mm-hmm. the codeine, it was yeah. all in there. After she was caught, there were a lot of delays for the trial that you know they changed the venue oh, to yeah. a different county because of the publicity mm-hmm. that the you know the whole case was receiving right she was tried on nine counts of homicide and the trial actually began february the 9th of 1993 that was a pretty big delay then yeah. from when she got captured yeah and her her defense team they didn't deny that she buried the bodies or that she cashed their checks but they, you know, all said, oh, well, the tenants died of natural causes. Oh, okay. So, the trial lasted for months and months. Um, finally, on July 15th, the jury retired to deliberate. 
weeks past. What? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking this is like open and shut. You would think, but the jury, it did not come back until August 26th. 43 days. That is the longest deliberation in California history. I mean, I feel like it should have been two hours if that, like, <sighs> we know she did it. Like, come yeah. on now. 43 days to, wow. to deliberate if this woman is guilty. On four of the counts, the jury returned a split vote. 11 guilty, one not guilty. <gasps> Who's that asshole? <laughs> oh. For two of the other counts, the jury was split equally. But for the murder of Benjamin Fink and the murder of Vera Faye Martin, she was found guilty in the first degree. And for the murder of Leona Carpenter, she was found guilty in the second degree. On October the 13th, Dorothea was sentenced to two life terms for the murder of Fink and Martin and 25 years to life for Leona. And this time there would be no parole. Thank goodness. But how? I just, I don't know how the jury would be so, so split. split. Yeah. Totally. On the different cases. Mm -hmm. They were all found in her yard. Right. I mean, all the same drugs. How can they think that, you know, oh, she might not be guilty for this one, but she's guilty for this one. Right. It just doesn't make sense. So, yeah, that I, I don't understand that either. Whatever. You know, she actually ended up serving her time in the California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, uh, California. So uh, she was never sentenced to death or anything. No, just locked just in prison. Life. Life without parole. And uh, she was probably in jail making brownies and shit. Like, <laughs> hey, come on. Well, so did she die in prison? What happened she to did. her? She did. On March 27th, 2011, she died from natural causes um, at Chowchilla. That so wasn't she... the, even that long ago. No. I don't even remember hearing anything in the news about that. I really, I don't think I did either. She was 82 when she died. Wow. That old bitty lived a long life then. Yeah. yeah. I'm sticking to my story that she had an accomplice. I don't know who you it know. was, but I feel like she had somebody. Or maybe she had multiple people. You know, like she could have had, and then when she got tired of that person, she knocked them off and found another one. See, yeah, that's, my, I mean, possibly, like, like you said, did mm -hmm. Chief dig his own grave? Right. You know what? That's a really good possibility that he may have. I mean, at this point, you can't put anything past again, her. I guess they didn't find Chief in the yard, so I don't know. God only knows where the hell Chief he went. He may be in the river, too, in a box. Maybe he was the one who buried all the bodies for her. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and like he goes missing, and, you know, but he's not, he's, something, he's wow. probably out somewhere. God only knows. I really, this is real. I liked this one tonight because I really, I hadn't really even heard of her. So, yeah. well, know. and you know, the first time I'd ever heard of her, of course, was that Ghost Adventures episode when they, you know, and I was like, whoa, how, you know, in all the time I grew up, how mm -hmm. did I never hear about this? Right, because that was during our lifetime, and yeah. especially when she passed away, Yeah, you know, so. Well, I mean, and the whole trial, I mean, granted, I, you know, we were young mm -hmm. when it happened, but I, I still feel like I would have heard something, but yeah, I, I like doing, a, you know, and throughout this whole thing, you know, we're going to, of course, talk about the, the more well-known. Richard Ramirez, who I would yeah. totally marry, because I love him. He's Stop. so hot. <laughs> Sorry. 
you know, um, <sighs> is it, I think it's next week. Ju- January 13th. 13th. His, yeah, Netflix. His, I can't wait. I'm totally, I'm super I'm so excited, excited because, you know, I really haven't looked a lot into him. I can't wait. I really only know, like, just bits and pieces yeah. of his story, so. I'll be interested to find out more about his childhood and stuff. Yeah, know? now, from what I've heard, it, it was pretty It horrific. was pretty bad, it I've heard. pretty But not, bad. like, I don't know a lot of details like, about it. Again, with the whole Ghost Adventures thing, like, I did watch an episode where they investigated a place uh, in the town he was from. And, uh, which is like right across from the border of Juarez. But I remember them saying something like he, um, was abused. Yes. And to escape the abuse, he would go sleep in the cemetery. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, supposedly. So we'll see, but yeah. Maybe this is who we're going to talk about next week. Maybe. The week that uh, Netflix premieres The Night Stalker. That would be a good one. That would actually be a great segue. It would. So we Mm. we may do that. So yeah, tune in next week. Yes. And uh, that's who we may be discussing. You guys have a great evening.